0: As our culture sinks deeper and deeper into the seas of secularism, the roots of many Christian values and beliefs which were once planted very deeply are being pulled. There are many issues and beliefs that we as Christians in this culture are fighting for and there are many false ideas that we are resisting. And one of the more controversial and important issues wrapped up in what some people deem the culture war is the issue of patriarchy. What is patriarchy? Well, if you were to break the word down, it literally means father rule. But more generally speaking, it simply means that God has endowed men with unique leadership opportunities in certain spheres of life where women are not allowed to be leaders. In short, the word patriarchy means that men should be leaders. Men lead. Fathers rule. We live in what is, I think we can safely say, maybe there's controversy around this, but I think we live in a largely feministic culture. We have a very feminist culture. And feminism pushes an opposing worldview to patriarchy known as egalitarianism egalitarianism by the way I always remember egalitarianism because it has the word gal in it kind of convenient egalitarianism simply means that this uh, idea that there are certain spheres of life where men alone are called to lead is wrong headed and that women should always have the same opportunities to be leaders as men they true egalitarians want to see females represented in all areas of life equally to men And we've seen egalitarianism even creep in to the Christian church in many areas. There are many, many churches that are ordaining female pastors. And the question for us then is what side of this debate should we fall on? What side should we join? Does the Bible commend us, the patriarchy? Or does the Bible call, commend us to burn, to tear down the patriarchy, down with the patriarchy? Is it misogynist and evil to deny women leadership just on the basis of their gender? Well, uh, We obviously cannot give a comprehensive answer to that question, but our sermon series through Ephesians is going to present us today with a very important text that helps us begin to understand which side of this debate we should fall on. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians five twenty-one through 24, please? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. As you turn there, I just want to remind us, this is the value and the benefit of preaching through books of the Bible um, systematically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If, if you're a visitor here, if you've come here, it, it, you might be tempted to think that I just picked some hot-button social issue and thought, I, I, I want to go after the ladies today. I want to go after the, the wives in our church today. Um, but just so you know, if you're a visitor with us, we preach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The text dictates what we talk about. I don't dictate what we talk about. So we're talking about this because the Bible is talking about this today. So uh, don't think that I have like, a bone to pick or an axe to grind with anyone in this church Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, I ask you to please stand, which is a way that we show reverence for the reading of God's word. Thus saith the Lord, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, as you know, probably noticed, I picked an awkward place for us to begin reading the text. And I did this for a reason. Um, as a matter of fact, most of the commentators that I read would commend me in what I did. Uh, we, we did technically begin with the last verse of the last section. Paul is talking about spirit filled living. And last week we saw how spirit filled living causes us to be thankful for all things. Spirit-filled living causes us to sing songs of praise and gratitude and teach one another. But spirit-filled living will cause us to do something else. And that's in verse 21, as Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled living creates not prideful hearts in Christians, which demand authority and demand power as much as possible, but quite the opposite. It commends us to be submissive we all in this church have an obligation to be submissive towards one another out of our reverence for Christ. In other words, it is the Spirit of God who will so increase the love that we have for one another that because we will so much love each other, it will be our heart's desire to lay our own preferences down and give you your preference. As John Calvin very eloquently put it, where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. When everybody loves each other, it's a natural outflow of that love that we're going to seek to serve one another, to bless one another, and to lay our preferences down. This means in most scenarios that we need to be willing to put aside small issues for the sake of the church's unity and for the sake of blessing other people. Uh, By the way, this is something that I think our church does remarkably well. Um, No church is perfect. Every church has strengths and weaknesses. We have weaknesses. Every pastor has strengths and weaknesses. I have weaknesses. But I think that this is actually one of our strengths. I know that there are things that take place on a Sunday to Sunday routine that probably get under your skin. There are different things that probably annoy you on a week-to-week basis, whether it's things that I choose to say or the liturgy or the songs that I choose or it's too hot or it's too cold or the chairs are ugly or that person next to me always smacks their gum. I, I don't know what it is. But I know that there's, there are things that if you were in total control, you would probably do differently. But these small things, in my experience being here for over three years, have never become big things. They've never become big things. And I, I just want to commend you in that. It's amazing how often small, petty things will grow and destroy churches. And when that happens, that's when we have failed to put verse 21 into practice, to mutually submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. Sometimes the person next to you getting their way is more important than you getting your way. Why? Because you love them. And because you love Christ. You love our common Savior. And so I just want to commend you in that work and call you to continue in that work to mutually submit to one another. What are some of the small things that you can continue to put your preferences aside and let someone else be blessed? However, the reason I started with this verse is because what the Apostle Paul does is interesting. He does give us this very quick snapshot, a a general call for the whole church to be in submission to one another. But then what he does through the rest of chapter 5 is he actually gives us specific examples of what this submission looks like. And Paul chooses not to focus on the church, but on the family. Paul believes that one of the most important ways for you to bless and serve your church is not just to do what he says in Philippians, to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But the primary way that you submit to your church is actually by submitting to the family that you belong to within the church. If we can get our households in order, then the church, which is a collection of households, will be in order. The, the, the most important way for you to put to practice verse 21 is by following the Lord's commandments in household order, in household authority. And we know this because Paul's going to give a list of examples of submission. Right after 21, he goes in to talk about wives. And then he, next week, he'll talk about Husbands. And then the week after that, he'll talk about children. And then the week after that, he'll talk about slaves. He immediately talks about how we submit to one another within the household that God has given to us. So I started here because I want to commend us to continually submit to one another, but we need to do what Paul has done and primarily focus not on how we can submit to each other, although we should do that. And other places in the New Testament emphasize that. But here, what is emphasized is the family. And so we are going to take each of these uh, by themselves wives husbands children's slaves we are going to take one sermon for each of these uh, so today as you read we are going to be talking about wives and how wives submit to their husbands and I couldn't help but wonder why in God's providence Layla was called to be uh, the nursery this week I think she did this on purpose that's my suspicion I'm just kidding but no we have to talk about this controversial thing that we just read what did we just read? That it is a very clear commandment from the Apostle Paul that wives must submit to their husbands. But we can flesh this out, and I want to give this some structure. I want you to see an interesting structure in the text, but admittedly, I didn't see this at first. Uh, Charles Hodge, one of my favorite theologians, saw this. And Charles Hodge noticed something interesting about the structure of this text. Paul doesn't just tell wives to submit very glibly, the way it kind of seems when we read through. Rather, Paul sort of gives three things to the women and the wives of our church. He gives the grounds of submission, the extent of your submission, and the motivation for your submission. So we're going to look at those things. The grounds of submission, why do you submit? The extent of your submission, how far does your submission go? And then the motivation, what, what, what will help you to continue and to do this very difficult command? The grounds, the extent, and the motivation. So let's look at the grounding of submission. Why is it that wives submit to husbands? And I'm going to give you the answer up front. We'll go back and see it. The answer is creation. The grounding of submission is creation. And what I mean by that is God's intended order. What God made, How God made the world to function is the grounding of our submission. Where do I get that? Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So notice how Paul actually is appealing to God, how God created men and women. Here's, here's the point that I'm making. According to this text, husbands objectively are the heads of the wife. They don't become the head when the wife chooses to submit and make him the head. He is the head whether there's any submission going on or not. This is, in other words, this is not something we do. It's an objective reality. The husband is the head of the wife. This isn't something we voted on. This isn't something we chose. This is how God made it to be. When a woman runs the household, which this happens in a lot of scenarios, whether you have a submissive passive husband or in most cases an unfaithful, evil, absent husband, absent father... When the wife is running the household, she is not the head of that household. She's acting like it, but she isn't. Women are never the heads of households. They might act like it, but they're not. Husbands are the head. When you have an absent father or, an, or, or, or a, a submissive father, you don't have the woman as the head of that household. You have an unfaithful father as the head of that household. You have a bad head as the head. But the husbands are always, objectively speaking, the head. And, and, and Paul really draws this out by comparing it to Christ, right? Husbands are the head over their wives in the same way, he says, even as Christ is head of the church. Let me ask you this. Did we vote on who was going to be head of the Christian church? If we all chose to fall into apostasy, disobey the covenant, and live in sin, do we become the head and Christ gets demoted? No. Christ, objectively speaking, is the head. That's how God made it. God made Christ the head. Our job is to either obey that and and accept it with gladness or rebel against it. But Christ will always be the head of the church, whether we act like it or not. In the same way, Paul says, even as, in the same way, husbands are, objectively speaking, made by God to be the head, whether we act like it or not. So why should women, why should wives submit to their own husbands? And remember, you're not submitting to everyone else's husband. This is not a commandment for all women to submit to all men. This is not a commandment that any time a woman in a man are in the room, the man has authority. That's not what Paul is saying. Wives, he says, submit to your own husbands. Okay, so this is not about men domineering over women generally. It's about wives submitting to husbands. And why should they do that? Because husbands are the head. Of the household. God established objectively that the man is the head of the household. Now, but the other things are really important here. So once we sort of establish, God is very clear. Husbands are the heads of households. That's the grounding. That's why women should submit. We don't submit to Christ to make him Lord. We submit to Christ because he is Lord. In the same way, wives don't submit to husbands to make them the head. They should submit to their husbands because God made them the head. That's the grounding. What's the extent then? How far does this authority go? How, how, how much authority do husbands have? And this is where the Apostle Paul is really going to push the buttons of our culture. The extent of submission, everything. Everything. Wives submit to their husbands in everything. Read with me, beginning again at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord... For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What is the extent of your submission? You submit in everything. Now, let's qualify this. Let's nuance this. Uh, Theologians, sometimes you'll read, they'll talk about how extent is not the same thing as degree. Extent is not the same thing as degree. What does Paul mean when when he says that wives must submit to their husbands in in all things or in everything? That does not mean that you must obey every commandment that ever comes out of your husband's mouth. That is emphatically not what that phrase everything means. Rather, the word thing in this context is referring to categories, to spheres of life, not to the degrees, but to the extent. So in other words, husbands don't have a purely spiritual authority. This is an application of this. Sometimes I've heard people say this. Well, husbands are the spiritual leaders of the household, so they get authority over things like where we go to church and whether or not we baptize our kids and when we do family devotions, Uh, but they don't have authority outside of a spiritual background. Like a a husband could never tell a wife her clothes are inappropriate. A husband could never tell children uh, that they're shouldn't do this or that in certain areas, right? They, they want to limit the extent of the husband's authority to only spiritual matters. But Paul says the exact opposite. The husband's rule does not just apply to the spiritual realm. It applies to all realms. Behavior, dress, where you live, where you go to church. The husband has authority in everything, in all spheres. And again, that is not the same thing, is that every commandment that he ever gives must be obeyed. And we know this, because this would, if we believed that, this would be an obvious Bible contradiction between what Paul is saying here and what Peter and the other apostles taught us about how God alone has supreme and ultimate authority. I have that verse on the screen for you. This is a good verse for you to memorize. Acts 5.23. This is when Peter and the apostles were commanded by legitimate religious authorities to no longer preach the gospel of Christ because they were causing problems in the community. And here's Peter's response. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than man. So, Paul is not telling women, anytime your husband says anything at all, you must obey it. If your husband ever calls you to sin, disobey him. God has alone supreme and ultimate to every highest degree, jurisdiction. So if someone is asking you to sin, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's the President of the United States, if it's your pastor, if it's your employer, if it's your closest friend, if it's your very spouse. If someone asks you to sin, disobey. Disobedience to tyranny is obedience to God. We must obey God rather than men. So Paul is not saying that husbands have an an authority that extends extends to the highest degree. God alone has that. He's merely saying that all areas of life is a legitimate area where a husband could exercise his authority. Does that make sense? It's not limited to a particular sphere. But nonetheless, with that qualification in mind, wives must submit to their husbands as to the Lord in everything. Everything. Now, as scary as this may sound, and if everyone in this room, what you should be doing at this point in the sermon is just praying for Layla's help. That's what you should be doing. If you know me at all, this should terrify you, but let me qualify it a little bit, okay? As scary as this might sound, please keep in mind that the husbands are going to be addressed next week, okay? Uh, if you feel like, oh man, he's really coming after the women in here, I'm coming after the husbands hard next week, okay? So that should temper this a little bit for you because what you're going to see is that God is going to call the husbands to rule with the welfare of their wives in mind. So what Paul is not doing here, and if you don't believe me, just be patient and wait for next week. What Paul is doing here is he's not telling you his women, to submit to a selfish dictator who is just using you to get whatever he wants out of life. He is calling you to submit to someone who has himself been commanded to lay down his own life for you. He's asking you to submit to someone who cares about your welfare more than anything else in the world. That's different, isn't it? That's why I love one commentator said that both roles, husband's leadership, wives' submission, demand total self-renunciation. It's not just wives who are being asked to lay themselves down. Husbands are going to be asked to lay themselves down too. Both of us have to kill ourselves to make marriage work, okay? You're going to see that next week. But here, we want to just do what Paul's done, and we want to just focus on women, and say that you have been called to submit to the husbands that love you. And that's different than submitting to the husbands who are using you for selfish advantage. Another commentator I love said, that what Paul is ultimately calling the wives in this room to do is complete submission to complete love. Submit yourself to love. And by the way, as a secondary application, this should also remind us of why marrying in the Lord is so important. When when we take this in mind, do you see why it's so crucial that Christians marry other Christians? The Bible actually goes so far as to say it is a sin. It is sinful. This is very explicit. We talked about it at Sunday school today. It is sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And we see the logic of it now. Can you imagine how difficult a marriage is when light and darkness have tried to be unequally yoked together and light wants to go one way, dark wants to go another way? Can you imagine, especially for women, having to submit themselves to a husband who does not have the Lord's? aims in mind the husband who is not submitting to the bible to tell him how to be a good husband that's terrifying that's terrifying and so i want to compel and call all of our christian parents in here um we all want our kids to be happy and sometimes our kids are going to be head over heels for non-christians and we want to see them happy and it's going to be easy for us to find as many loopholes as we can to make that relationship okay but it's not okay The most important thing you must care about in your children's future spouse is their relationship with the Lord. That is the most important thing. How much money they make matters, but it's not as important. What they look like might even matter, but it's not important. Where they might live, there's a lot of important things, but the most important thing is does this person love the Lord? And if they don't, your answer is no, you don't have my blessing. It has to be. And by the way, this is not just to be some, some you know, stuck-up Puritan. It's for their own benefit. You ask any Christian who is married to a non-believer how their life has gone. One of two things always happens. The Christian ends up just capitulating and living like a non-Christian. Or they're miserable and they're fighting and they're, they disagree throughout the entirety of their lives. Those are the only two options you are setting your child up for when you bless their marriage to non-believers. You're either going to stop being a Christian one day, you're going to follow your spouse into idolatry, or you two are going to be at each other's throats in vital disagreement on the most important issues of life forever. Don't do it. Our children must marry in the Lord. And that's how this relationship of submission works properly. So we've talked about the ground of submission. We've talked about the extent of submission. We need a motivation. Every every wife in this room is thinking about all of her husband's flaws and faults and thinking, I need some help. You're asking me to do a lot here. And it is. We are. The Bible is asking you to do a lot here. What's your motivation? What has God given you? What's the carrot on the string, so to speak, to help you submit to your husbands in all things? Well, that's found in verse 21. What does Paul say? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The motivation of submission is the fear of the Lord. The motivation for your submission is the fear of the Lord. And by the way, verse 21, is not he has not yet specifically talked about wives here. This is the same motivation we all have for all areas of our submission. Whenever you're called to submit, whether it's to the church, to your employer, to the state, or to your husband's, you always submit for the same reason, the fear of the Lord. What is reverence for the Lord or what is fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is to be so in awe of the love and power of Christ that you delight to live in his sovereignty. You're just so amazed at the love and goodness and power and majesty of Jesus Christ that it, 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 you, you love living as, with him as your Lord. You embrace his lordship because he is the greatest of all lords. And so what Paul is doing in this context, you are submitting to Christ when you submit to your husband. Not because your husband is Christ, but because you're doing it not because your husband asks you to do it. You're doing it because Christ asks you to do it. You show your love and your affection and your pleasure In your salvation with your Savior by obeying all of His commands, even the really hard ones, and that includes submitting to fallible, mistake-prone people like us. It's a hard commandment, but when we love Christ, we're willing to obey the hard commandments. When we have reverence for Christ, we're willing to obey the difficult commandments. It is out of reverence and love for Christ that your willingness to do what is difficult and unpleasant springs from and this is important because society is going to regularly put pressure on all of our women to renounce biblical patriarchy. This is why we must put the love and fear of Christ before your eyes because you are going to be presented with two options. Please the culture or please your Lord. Please your coworkers or please your Lord. Please the Instagram influencers or pre- please the Lord. And so what I am trying to do with verse 21 here is I'm trying to compel you. Do not submit to the culture. Isn't it ironic? You're not, they, the culture doesn't want you to submit to your husband. But when you obey them, you have just become their submissive slave. You, 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 you're not going to get out of obedience. Right? You can either obey Christ and the husband who loves you, or you can obey the pagans. But they, you've been put in a position where you're going to be someone's slave. You're going to listen to someone's voice and act on it. Who are you going to listen to? The husband who loves you and loves Christ or the culture that hates you and hates Christ? I am asking you to submit to Christ and not culture. Obey Christ, not culture. Submit to your husbands in everything. Now, what I want us to do with the little bit of time we have remaining is I want to just briefly it's not going to be sufficient, but I want us to get into some of the objections to what I've just said, because I, I know it's not easy. I'm, I'm not trying to pretend like this is easy. But so far, I think we've established that at least as it pertains to the family, the Bible is a patriarchal book. Christianity is a patriarchal religion, at least as it pertains to the family. Husbands are the head of the household. Husbands are the head of their wives. And I think it's pretty obvious. I think that the text is kind of obvious. I think the language is kind of plain here. So why is it that it's not so obvious to so many people? Why is it that this is so hard to believe? Why is it so hard for so many people to accept with gladness? Because in my experience, and it's okay to admit this, there are areas of the Christian life where I've done this too, there are some things where we accept because we know the Bible teaches it, but our hearts have not been conformed to it yet. In other words, I obey that law, but I don't like it. Right? We all go through that sometimes. So it's okay. You might be a woman in here thinking, yeah, this is what the Bible says and I'm going to obey it, but if I'm, if I'm honest, I don't like it. Why is it? Like, why is this so tough? And, and I, I can't give every reason that I've heard, but I want to give what I think are the three most popular reasons why people push back against this sermon and try to just give a very brief, hopefully sufficient, but very brief refutation of it. Uh, the first one you often hear is that the women have equal value argument. Uh, This is perhaps the most common reason that stems just from our natural inclinations. Um, When we hear something like, wives, submit to your husbands and everything, we just naturally tend to interpret that as a demeaning commandment, that wives have been demeaned, that, well, if if husbands are the leaders, the rulers, uh, the authorities, then they must be more important. Like, husbands have, have a greater value. Men have a greater value than women. But if we believe that everyone is made in the image of God, that every person in this room has the same image of God, and that God loves everyone equally, then how could we go up saying, well, one of you has authority and one of you doesn't, right? It just, this idea that men have authority just seems to be in contradiction to the fact that we all have equal value and are equally loved by God. But I want us to see that this idea that submission always entails a demeaning of personhood is just simply not true. This this doesn't exist in logic in the real world, and it doesn't exist in Scripture. Uh, I think perhaps the greatest example I could give of this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus Christ took on flesh, Philippians 2 says he took on the form of a servant. Christ, in his incarnation, became submissive and obedient. He did not submit to the Father in eternity past, That's an error that a lot of Christians hold today. Jesus was not in a submissive posture to the Father in the Trinity. But when he took on flesh, when he entered into human creation, he became a man. And what do men do? They obey. If Jesus Christ didn't obey, then he was a sinner and not Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant. He came to be submissive to more than one person. Primarily, he was submissive to who? God, his father. Read the book of John and read how many times Jesus says things like, I speak no words on my own authority, but only that which has been given me of my father. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus Christ obeyed God. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, please take this cup from me. God, please let this cup pass from me, but how did he qualify it? but not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want this, but if you take me this way, I will obey you. Jesus was an obedient, submissive servant. And yet, the scriptures regularly, with clarity, teach that he was in that time of submission, fully equal to God. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the creation of the world. We could go on and on. Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus maintained his full deity and his full equality with the Father, and the fact that he submitted to the Father never once... Do the biblical authors reason from that? Well, he must not be God anymore. He must be a lesser God. That's what the Arians did, by the way. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, by the way. They say Jesus can't be equal to God because he submits to God. And how can a submissive person be equal to the authority? They are, they are working with this false assumption that submission always demeans personhood. But by the way, if you want to say, well, that's kind of a tight argument because the mystery of the incarnation, it's a big thing. The father's not the only person Jesus submitted to. Jesus was born to Mary. He had an adoptive dad named Joseph. Jesus, being a perfect child, obeyed his parents. You know what happened when Mary told Jesus to clean his room? Do you think Jesus said, Woman, I'm the maker of heaven and earth. How dare you boss me around? You know what he said? Yes, ma'am. When Joseph asked Jesus to fix the fence, you know what Jesus said? Yes, sir. He's Joseph's God. Yes, sir. Submission does not lessen your dignity, your personhood, or your value. By the way, we don't even need Jesus to prove this. Uh, if, If we just zoom out a little bit from the marriage context, the very husbands you submit to are submissive people themselves. We have to submit in tons of areas of our lives. Like, it's not as if it's just women who submit and men never have to submit to anything. In fact, one of the ways that we as husbands can show our wives why they should trust us and submit to us is by showing them how submissive we are willing to be. When a police officer pulls, when I see a police officer come up behind me and his lights go on, what does God expect me to do? Pull over. And when he asks for my ID, what does God expect me to do? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Romans 13, we obey the governing authorities. The husbands you submit to, submit to the state. Does that mean that police officers have more intrinsic value in their personhood than me? Police officers are significantly more important. God loves cops way more than he loves anyone in this room because they have authority over you. It doesn't make sense. Husbands submit to their employers. They submit to the state. They submit to their churches. We all live lives of submission. And never once do we ever think that, oh, I submit to my employer, therefore he has more intrinsic worth than me, except when it comes to marriage. Now all of a sudden, no, if a wife has to submit to her husband, she must be lesser, she must be dirt. We don't care about women. It doesn't logically follow. Submission does not take away your worth. So let me just remind the women in this room, if you need to be reminded, that God calls you to submit to your husband in no way indicates that your husband is more important than you, that God loves your husband more than you. None of those things are true. The second reason we often hear, a really popular reason, is that Christ came to abolish gender distinctions. Christ abolished gender. In other words, people contradict Paul in Ephesians by appealing to Paul in other places. They deny Paul's teaching based off texts like, for example, I've got Galatians 3:20 on the screen for you. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. How could Paul be consistent where he says females are subjected to males, that wives subject to husbands, when in Christ, there's no such thing as a female? In Christ, there's no such thing as a male. There's a really important theological phrase I want you to remember. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. Grace does not destroy nature. Grace does not destroy destroy nature. I'm going to say it one more time. Grace does not destroy nature. Nature is good. When God made the heavens and the earth, he made male and female and what do you call it? Oh, this is bad. I need to I need to send my son to obliterate this whole thing. This is terrible. We got men, we got women. Ugh, gross. I want nothing. Send Christ. No. Very good. Your sex is good. If you're a woman in this room, praise God, that's good. If you're a man in this room, praise God, that's good. Jesus did not come to make men not men. He didn't come to make women not women. Grace does not destroy nature. What Paul is communicating in a verse like this is he's simply saying, as it pertains to salvation, the different natural distinctions that exist among men do not profit you. That's all Paul is saying. All he's saying is that you do not have more access to Christ if you're a man. You are not more saved by your faith in Christ if you're rich. Paul is saying that God loves everybody equally, that in Christ, the distinctions that exist in the real world, free, slave, male, female, your race, your skin color, those don't matter in a salvific context. God did not, Jesus did not come just to save the Jews. He came to save Gentiles like you and me. It doesn't matter to Jesus if you're Jew or Gentile, he came to save you. He didn't just come to save men, he came to save women. He didn't just come to save the rich, he came to save the poor, etc., etc. All Paul is saying is that our natural distinctions do not have salvific relevancy or benefit. But it is a category error to take what applies to salvation and then try to make it to apply to all of these other areas of life. And let me just give you a quick trip. Here's a tip. Here's how I think if you encounter someone who uses this. I think you could easily refute them. One of the things that Paul also says is that there is no slave or free. So do a little little mental game with me. Imagine that I built a time machine and I went back to the southern slave trade and I stepped foot onto one of the most evil, malicious plantations in all of the South and I walked up to a group of slaves fresh off the boats from Africa who have become Christians and are praying to God for freedom and deliverance. And I look at them and I say, you're not slaves. Don't you know that Christ came to abolish slavery distinctions? Don't you read your Bibles? Galatians 3, in Christ there's no such thing as a slave. There's no such thing as slave or free men. We're all one in Christ. Why are you complaining? Why are you whining? You're not a slave. Do you think your opponent would accept that? No. Obviously slaves are still slaves. Rich people are still rich. Men are still women. That's not the context of what Paul is saying here. So it is perfectly consistent for Paul in one context to say, as it pertains to salvation, man, woman doesn't matter. But in another context, as it pertains to the nature of the household, your gender distinctions are real and they do matter. Uh, One of the things I'm thankful for, when I became a Christian, I was not given the ability to have a baby. And I, after seeing my wife go through it, I'm very thankful that I was not given the ability to have a baby. You know why? Because becoming a Christian didn't destroy my nature. It didn't make me not a man. That's not what Paul is saying. Your nature is good. Embrace it. Your nature just doesn't matter when it comes to God's love and salvation. The last one, we need to be quick about this. Probably the most common way people get around a text like Ephesians 5 is they say something like, this is all just cultural. Paul was just asking them to submit to uh, the, 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 the common cultural ethic of, of Ephesus because if the Christians go around breaking all of these customs, then they're going to look like troublemakers. Like, so for the sake of the gospel, these Christians in this area, in this time, needed to obey the Ephesian cultural principles. But this is not an objective thing for all Christians everywhere to follow. Right? This is a temporary cultural commandment. It's not an objective commandment. There are numerous ways to show that this is false but I'm going to focus on the most important way and it goes back to what we talked about in the grounding principle. We know that Paul is not referring to social customs but to objective truths because every time Paul brings up anything related to the patriarchy, he always grounds his arguments in creation. He never grounds them in culture or custom. He always grounds them in God's purpose for creation. We already saw that in verse 23. That husbands objectively are the heads. They are that. Ephesus did not make husbands the head. God did. God made husbands the head. And we see that. We saw that connected to Christ in the church. Right? If husbands are lord of the household, Paul says, even as Christ is lord of the church. So if husbands being lord of the household is a temporary social custom, what else is a temporary social custom? Christ's lordship over the church. That's not social. That's not cultural. That's not temporary. Right? So verse 23 already established it, but I want to give you, if you think, well, you're reading too much into that, Paul is very explicit in other places. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I don't have this on the screen, but you can turn to it. I have the reference on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 2. With me, verses eleven through fourteen. Now we're going to see patriarchy applied not to the household. I think I may have had the wrong reference down. Give me just one second. Oh no, I didn't. First Timothy chapter two. Yes, beginning in verses eleven through fourteen. Now we're going to see patriarchy applied to the church, not to the house, but to the church. But notice Paul's grounding. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, so he's going to tell us why. Why is he doing this? Is it because of cultural stuff? For, what? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul does not appeal to culture or custom. He appeals to creation. In other words, Paul is making an argument from how God created and what God's intentions were when he created. And this is kind of a good question uh, question to ask being answered here. Have you ever asked yourself this? It's a common question that kids will sometimes ask. Why did God make Adam and Eve so differently? right? If they're they're both equal, if they both have the same image of God, why were they created so differently? Who was made first? Adam. And there was a a relatively long gap before woman was made, long enough for Adam to realize, I can't do this alone. Long enough for God to say, it's not good for man to be alone. He created Adam long before he created Eve. And he made them differently. What was Adam made from? The dust. What was Eve made from? From Adam, that's what woman means, from the man. So why did God make them differently? Certainly God had the power just to make them both at the same time in the same way, did he not? So Paul is saying, God did something interesting here, and so he, it means he did it intentionally. He's trying to teach us something here. He's trying to teach us something about men and women, and he tells us the reason men are given a patriarchal authority is because that's how God designed it. That's God's intention. And how do we know that's God's intention? Because he made man first, and he made woman from his side as his helper. Woman and men were made differently at different times for different purposes, egalitarianism is false by Genesis 1 standards men and women are made differently but this is not the only time Paul does this turn in your Bibles to first Corinthians chapter 11 this is a much longer passage we're going to read and unfortunately this is one of those I'm okay saying this crazy passages It's got a lot of stuff in this passage that I'm sure you're going to be just dying to hear someone's thoughts on. And we're already running late, so we don't have time to get into stuff. Stuff like head coverings and angels and long hair and short hair. So there's a lot of stuff I apologize we just can't cover, unfortunately. But the main issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is incredibly relevant to what we're doing. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning right at the beginning. Or forgive me, let's begin in verse 2. I've been talking and not turning 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 2 now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of God, image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Again, I know there's a lot of stuff in there about head coverings in hair, but what are those things all symbolic of? They're all symbolic of the hierarchy that God created in nature. Right? We saw in verse 3 that man is objectively the head of the woman and he himself is under Christ. We saw in verses 7 and 8 how he appeals to how God made men and women differently for different purposes. In verse 9, he specifically teaches that God created men and women for these different purposes, that men... That women were created for men and out of man. And then, even to cap it all off in verse 16, he goes on to say, This is the teaching in every church, not just your cultural church, not just Ephesus. Every church that Paul oversees, this is the standard practice. So, again, Paul is grounding his arguments in creation, in God's intent and purposes. This is not cultural custom. In other words, Ephesus did not make husbands the lords of the home. God did. God did. Now, we've gone on far too long. Let's summarize. What have we covered? We've learned the grounds, the extent, and the motivations for why and how wives are to submit to their own husbands. And then we tried to briefly answer the critics who denied us. So how can we compile this long message into one easy statement for you to remember and to put into practice? I have this on the screen for you. Here's what you take home with you. Women please the Lord by willfully submitting to their husbands in all things. Women please the Lord by willfully submitting to their husbands in all things.